not be as famous as the Amos of famous Amos cookies. Now, anyway, I want to introduce you to Amos by asking two questions. Uh, who is Amos and why are we studying this book that he wrote? First of all, who is Amos? In the first verse of his book, Amos introduces himself to us as a shepherd of Tekoa, which um, you see the arrow pointing to Tekoa. Right above it, you'll see Jerusalem. It's about a 10-mile journey from Tekoa up to, or, yeah, up to Jerusalem. Um, later, in uh, chapter 7, verse 14, uh, Amos refers to himself. Um, he's saying, I was uh, no prophet nor a prophet's son. Now, when you think of prophet, uh, the image that comes to mind of most people is someone who can foretell the future. And some of the prophets in the Old Testament did foretell the future, but basically a prophet was someone who spoke for God, in other words, of a preacher. In Old Testament days, there was a school of uh, prophets. It was known as the sons of the prophets. And so Amos is saying that he is neither a credential pastor nor is he a seminary student. Uh, by the way, um, before we hired Jared as our associate, we had uh, several resumes, and some of them on their resume didn't have uh, any place there where they had gone to seminary or had been credentialed ordained or anything like that and so um, a couple of them uh, called me and wanted to talk about the position who we were looking for and uh, I said I, well, I noticed uh, that you didn't list any um, you know, Bible college or seminary or uh, whether you're, you're ordained or not and um, both of these guys said well yeah that's true uh, but my father was a pastor you know I'm a PK so, well, you know, PK, whether it's uh, pastor's kid, preacher's kid, prophet's kid, you know, PKs uh, have been around for thousands of years. Um, so for a moment, I wondered, you know, maybe I should consider um, one or two of these guys. After all, Amos was not a seminary-trained pastor either. But when you look through the book of Amos, or when you hear it read, by the way, thank you, Helen, for reading two full chapters of Amos, uh, you will notice that Amos is a skilled, he's skilled in the literary arts. Uh, he writes prophecy in poetic form. So when Amos wasn't tending sheep or dressing figs, as we uh, see in uh, chapter 15, or uh, verse 15, it's clear that Amos was well-educated. It's also clear that he has a message from God for the people of Israel. Uh, as he says, go prophesy to my people Israel. So now we know who Amos is. He is a prophet, a spokesman for God. Now, next question, why are we studying Amos of all the books in the Bible. 
I need to put these famous Amos cookies away lest they distract me from what I want to say. Excuse me for a second. I'm easily distracted by cookies. Okay, so why are we studying the book of Amos? The book of Amos speaks to several theological and sociological issues uh, such as these. The book of Amos is a book about God and how he relates to the world. This book places a strong emphasis upon justice. It also speaks to social concerns. And furthermore, the book of Amos intentionally seeks to stir us out of complacency. And finally, the book of Amos points us to the gospel. Amos's message is a great follow-up series on the series of fake good news that we completed last week. So Israel had been listening to a variety of false gospels, the prosperity gospel in particular. And at this time in their history, Israel was a wealthy nation. They had not been this wealthy since the days of David and Solomon. They had conquered Aram, which is an ancient name for the land of Syria. And so just for your, as a, as a by the way, uh, comment, Israel and Syria have been in conflict with each other for you know at least 4,000 years. Uh, probably not going to shake hands and um, declare that they um, want to be friends with each other anytime soon. Anyway, uh, Israel had not been uh, all this, this prosperous, uh, but now they are. And because they were prosperous, they concluded that uh, God would, or that the day of the Lord would soon dawn in which God would subdue their enemies under their feet and make them the rulers of the world. So there you see foreshadowing of the prosperity gospel and the belief that prosperity is God's approval of you, that uh, he affirms you. Uh, so you got prosperity gospel there, and you also see some echoes of Christian nationalism, believing that you know they have most favored nation status, and God is going to crush all of their enemies uh, because their nation is God's favorite. But God sent Amos uh, to convince the people of Israel that they needed to correct their thinking. In other words, they needed to repent. The word repent means a change of mind. So not only was Israel not going to become the ruler of the world within just a few years, they would not exist as a nation at all. It would continue to exist as a people only by the unmerited grace of God, which we see in the ninth chapter of Amos, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. Uh, the phrase, the day of the Lord, uh, far from being a, a day of light, was going to be a day of of darkness. How do you think that sermon went over with the people of Israel when Amos comes up from Judah and tells them all this stuff? Think of it like this. Suppose an eloquent preacher from Chicago comes to Charleston and he preaches a message of doom and gloom to the evil empires of the world. So he'd say something like this, for three transgressions of Moscow and of four, followed by a pronouncement of judgment. For three transgressions and of four, 
there is a, a mention of Beijing. For three transgressions and for more, and for four, uh, Tehran. And so far, so good. You know, the preacher is beginning to gain an audience here. But then he shifts gears and he says, for three transgressions are for four, and he mentions Washington. Well, now he's getting a little closer to home, but we do recognize that there are some corrupt politicians in Washington, so they're going along with that pretty well. And then he gets a little closer to home and he says, for three transgressions um, and a four of Chicago, and we think, Okay, there are some corrupt politicians in Chicago as well, but then he really blows it when the preacher uh, suddenly interrupts and he says, for three transgressions and a four of Charleston. Whoa, wait just a minute here. You know, we were following you when you were pronouncing condemnation upon the evil empires of uh, Moscow and Beijing and Tehran and uh, even some of our own corrupt politicians and uh, the influential cities of this country and of our state. But when you start talking to us directly, you have crossed the line. Now, please understand uh, then I'm not saying that Charleston is worse than Chicago or Washington or any of the other cities I named. What I'm trying to do is to help you get into the skin of the people who heard it. Understand? So when this prophet comes and uh, he's pronouncing woes, um, a message of doom for the community, Someone came in and, and spoke a message like that, like uh, Amos did to Israel. Uh, wouldn't you also feel stunned, shocked, offended, and even vengeant? Well, that's how the people of Israel responded when Amos said, let's see what he said. Uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and of four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You see how low the people of Israel are uh, selling people into slavery for silver. And uh, they would even sell someone into slavery uh, for the price of a pair of sandals. Uh, those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Uh, the commentary note in the ESV study Bible points out something rather startling uh, regarding the reason for God's indictment against Israel. God does not accuse Israel of idolatry, although they were certainly guilty of that. What he condemns them for is social injustice and sexual perversion, the very issues that we as a nation are facing today. Are you beginning to see that the book of Amos might really be relevant? So my objective this morning is uh, twofold. First of all, uh, I want to introduce the book of Amos through 
an overview with the first two chapters, and second, I want to deal with one question in particular that Amos invites us to ask ourselves, and that question is this. Have we gradually moved away from God without realizing it? When such a question is asked, we tend to think in individual terms. Have I personally moved away from God without realizing it? And that's good. I mean, it's good that we should ask ourselves of that question as an individual. Uh, but God is uh, also addressing his people corporately. Have the various nations of the world, including our own, moved away from God? To ask that question is to answer it. But there is another way to ask ourselves whether or not we have moved away from God. When we see Israel as a nation mentioned in the Bible, uh, we may be tempted to apply what God says to Israel as a message to us as a nation. But it would be more accurate to apply what God says to Israel as a message to the church because after all, Israel was known as God's chosen people and today the church is known as God's chosen people, uh, elect from every nation. So here's how I want to approach this question. Have we moved away from God? Is there any evidence that indicates that we have moved away from God? So I want us to look at, look at the evidence which indicts a community of people, large or small, that have uh, moved away from God. So uh, exhibit A is the absence of the fear of God. One of the evidences that a community has moved away from God is that there is no longer any fear of God. How do you know when the fear of God is absent from a community? One sure way is when a community decides that God does not determine what is moral and what is not. The community does, which raises the question, who should have the right to decide what is right and what is wrong? Should the basis of morality be determined by political institutions such as Congress or the president or the courts? If something is legal, does that make it morally right? Or is morality determined not by political institutions, but by political correctness? Morality, the basis for determining right from wrong, is a big issue. It's always been a big issue, not just for individuals. The morality of nations is also an issue, a huge issue. Whether it's wars or economic policies, the actions of nations are judged to be right or wrong, moral or immoral. News stories are always couched in moral terms. Next time you listen to the news on TV, just listen for uh, the, the, the morality uh, of the report. Uh, there are stories blaming nations for inhumane treatment of minorities or of refugees. There are stories about blockades or embargoes or economic sanctions to put pressure on evil nations. Our own government, through the State Department or the White House, publicly condemns other nations for crossing the moral line. The international press daily judges the actions of nations 
Are those actions moral or are they immoral? The press will tell you when it believes some individual or some nation has crossed the moral line. And yet, at the same time, in our own nation, we are pursuing tolerance and acceptance and inclusiveness in such a way that moral judgments of individuals are strictly forbidden. Woe to the person who judges or criticizes or condemns anybody for a lifestyle choice that he or she makes. So internationally, uh, there is the tendency to make high moral judgments, but personally, don't you dare judge me. The prophet Amos takes a radically different approach. On the one hand, Amos judges the morality of nations. He declares that God holds nations accountable for their actions in war and their treatment of people. But Amos does not give the right to pass judgment to the international press or to certain favored nations or to individuals. The judgment of nations belongs to God. Who is this God who judges? If you ask people today what their view of God is, or more specifically, what we most need to hear about God, the answer would be something like this. God is love. And we need to hear about the love of God more than anything. That's understandable. Because if God is not love, then we have no assurance that he will bring about a future that is good and gracious. It's true. God is a God of love. But if God's nature is defined only as love, then we've got a problem. What is that problem? Let me put it to you like this. If the love of God is no more than a warm, fuzzy feeling, how do we know that he can carry out his purposes? How do we know that a God whose only defining attribute is love can execute justice? We need to know that God is more than a big, soft teddy bear. We need to know, as C.S. Lewis asserts in his book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that God is not a tame lion, but a roaring one. It is this God, this awesome and powerful God, this roaring lion whom Amos presents at the beginning of his prophetic book. This God is the Lion of Judah, whose roar echoes throughout the whole earth, a God big enough to handle the huge problems of our world, a God big enough to bring history to a conclusion and create a new heaven and a new earth. This is the real God. One thing's for sure, the image of God as a roaring lion does immeasurably more to instill the fear of the Lord in you than the image of a nice, soft, teddy bear ever could. So the absence of the fear of the Lord is convincing evidence that a community, large or small, has moved away from God. So let's look at further evidence that a community has wandered from God, Exhibit B, that's treating people as things or as possessions. Nothing moves God to punish so much as unprovoked cruelty to the helpless, for he is not rightly called the father of the fatherless, 
and the defender of the widow's cause. That's how he's described in Psalm 68, verse 5. The Syrians and the Philistines were guilty of treating people like things, things to use and then to dispense with, things to treat with contempt, unless they have some economic benefit. But they were not the only ones doing this. That's precisely what the wealthy in Israel were doing. They, too, were treating people like things. Had the Syrian commander been interviewed by a modern reporter uh, concerning the brutality of his conquest, he most likely would have said something like this. Hey, uh, there's a war going on. In a war, you hit the enemy with everything you've got and give it... Uh, or you, you give it as many ways as you can. It's a brutal business. But that is exactly the kind of argument that the Israelite merchants would have made to someone complaining about their treatment of the poor. So you might hear one of them say something like this. Listen, it's business. We aren't running a charity here. Our competitors aren't going to relax their efforts because we need to increase salaries and cut costs for the sake of the poor. And by the way, what's good for general chariots is good for Israel. Now that's the way people think, but it's not the way God thinks. You cannot treat people as things. In verse 3, we read these words. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with thresh, threshing, threshing sledges of iron. Uh, thresh, threshing sledges uh, were uh, the ancient day equivalent of combines. Uh, you know, a combine, it's called a combine, uh, because it combines reaping, threshing, and winnowing. Uh, so it's possible that uh, Syria's conduct of threshing the people of Gilead could be literal. That is, they ran over them with these uh, uh, threshing sleds, is what they look like. Uh, but it could also be, uh, Amos could be speaking metaphorically. See, threshing is what you do in order to extract uh, the grain from the, the chaff. And you do that in order to, um, it's for an economic reason. You can't sell chaff, so you have to separate wheat from the chaff. And uh, it could be that what Amos is referring to is that you are treating uh, people the way we, you would treat grain. Um, and you put them through this process of threshing in order to make a profit. So, it's treating people as things. War or no war, Hazel, the king of Syria, had no right to treat people as though they were things. This is an absolute moral principle that Amos campaigns for, that people are not things. Treating people as things for economic gain is not limited to the nations of another era or another part of the world. This is a problem that we have struggled with here in our own country as well, haven't we? Slavery, people being treated as things, 
In many cases, uh, treated no better than livestock. Families were often split up when a slave owner would sell one member of a slave family to another slave owner. There's the issue of abortion that's been in the news for nearly 50 years. Abortion was legal. Did that mean it was also moral because it was legal? Unborn babies were, have been viewed uh, not as humans. Um, they were not given that status, uh, but rather were seen as economic liabilities. So if you have an economic liability, and what you're looking for is an economic uh, asset, uh, some people become disposable. Treating people as things for economic gain is evidence that a community has moved away from God. We've also seen that the absence of the fear of God is evidence that a community has moved away from God. And now we come to our final presentation of evidence that uh, I want to submit to you, Exhibit C, the belief that you are not accountable to God. The book of Amos makes it clear that all nations are accountable to him to Yahweh, uh, the Lord God, as it is often expressed in Scripture. If you see uh, Lord in Scripture and the words uh, or the letters Lord are all in uh, um, uppercase but smaller font, uh, that's a reference to the name of the Lord, Yahweh, no one really knows how to correctly pronounce it. The Jews were so afraid that they would mispronounce it uh, that they would simply say the name or they would say uh, the Lord. But here in Amos, the, the name of God is used, uh, which uh, uh, customarily we pronounce uh, Yahweh. And we are accountable to him whether you believe in him or not. In Amos's day, each nation had its own God. And when nations went to war with each other, the battle was not only a contest of power between the people of the nations, it was also a battle between their gods. But Amos proclaimed something that would have been news to the nations. Yahweh is the God not only of Israel, but of all nations. And he will hold every nation accountable for the crimes they committed against humanity. All six of the nations that Amos calls out are charged with what we would call war crimes or crimes against humanity. Let me give you two or three examples in uh, fairly recent uh, history of, of the world. Um, I had a professor uh, once who was from, uh, he was of Armenian uh, descent of before I go on, I'm going to be talking about Armenians, uh, people from Armenia, which uh, today would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, we sometimes uh, have difficulty distinguishing uh, those who are Armenian uh, from Armenia and those who are Armenian who hold to a certain uh, theological understanding of uh, salvation. Um, so, you know, we have uh, some of us here are Armenian. I don't think any of us here are Armenian. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about Armenians. I'm going to be talking about Armenians. <laughs> okay. So in 1915, 
uh, the Turks wiped out one and a half million out of a total of two million Armenians. One third of that number were put to death in one week. In World War II, over six million Jews were systematically put to death. The ethnic cleansing, they call it. And our own nation is not without guilt. Uh, the U.S. drove some 60,000 Native Americans off their land through the Trail of Tears and the Indian Removal Act. What a name for a law. And you can add slavery to the list of things our country's done that come under the category of crimes against humanity. After the pronouncement of judgment on each of the nations in chapters 1 and 2 of Amos, we are told that the Lord will not revoke its punishment, meaning that all nations are accountable to the Lord for their crimes against humanity. It's interesting, don't you think, that God pronounces judgment on the nations not for their refusal to believe in him, not for worshiping some other god, but for what they did to other people. There are some things that we know are wrong without having to be told that they are wrong. No one really should have to be told that murder is wrong or that incest is wrong or as Amos had mentioned that uh, a father and his son go into the same girl. No one should have to be told that that is wrong. There are a number of things that are wrong because your conscience tells you that they are. Once there was a Christian businessman who was conducting some business in Thailand, and he noticed on the street uh, that evening that there was a young girl about 12 years old who was prostituting herself. And he looked on her face and saw nothing but terror. Maybe it was her first night on the streets. The man knew there was nothing he could do to help her, even if he tried. If he did get involved, he would cause legal trouble for himself and be expelled from the country. The young girl would rapidly find her way on the street again. You don't have to be a Christian to know that this kind of thing is wrong. No man would want his daughter or sister to suffer such abuse, such indignity. So why would anyone do such a thing to someone else's daughter or sister? Or consider this. In World War II, there's a British soldier whose name was David who was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. They didn't have a name for it in those days, but that's what he was suffering from and he had recurring nightmares. He was haunted by the, the memory of something that had happened. Uh, David was the only son of a widow. Uh, he lived in Yorkshire and attended uh, a, a church there. Uh, he entered uh, the, the war for, for the, the British. <clears throat> he was captured by the Germans in battle and um, while he was interred in the prison camp, uh, there was a certain German guard who was assigned to him to oversee him, 
And these two men um, became intrigued by the fact that they were both Christians and that they belonged to the same denomination. And so their friendship became uh, rather tight. The German soldier was kind to David. But one day, David saw an opportunity to escape, and so he did. There was a construction site nearby, so he hid himself there. Uh, soon afterward, there was a German soldier on a bicycle uh, who thought maybe David had sought shelter in this construction zone. So he got off his bike and pulled out his flashlight uh, with one hand and his pistol in the other and uh, was searching the area to see if he might find this escaped prisoner. Meanwhile, uh, David saw what the German soldier was doing. There was a, an, an iron bar uh, near where he was hiding, and so he took it and came up behind the German soldier and whacked him on the head and continued to whack him until he was dead. And then he turned the soldier over and looked into that man's face and saw that it was his brother in Christ, this man who had befriended him. No wonder he suffered haunting nightmares on a regular basis. He was never able to be free of the image of that man's face. The point is that everyone understands what haunted that man. Everyone gets the brutal and the moral reality. You don't have to be a Christian to understand it or to feel it. Some things are universal. So we know very well what is right and what is wrong. We all do wrong. And this is the story of every human being. What a delightful sermon, isn't it? I mean, aren't you just uh, thinking, oh, this is really inspiring and comforting and engaging and all of that? Uh, well, ad admittedly, uh, this has not been an easy sermon to hear, nor has it been an easy sermon to deliver. You know, if God is such a good God, how can there be such inequalities? and sufferings in his world. Isn't the reality of uh, inequalities and sufferings evidence that there is no God? But if there is a God, then he is not a good God? Well, Amos argues against that conclusion, and so do I. Consider the alternative. Consider the alternative of the fake good news that there is no God. If there is no God, then everything has to be ruled by blind chance. And if everything is ruled by chance, then inequalities, sufferings deserved or undeserved, injustices and everything else are nothing more than the spin of a wheel. They are facts, realities, not problems. But there is a God. A God who is good. A God who is both just and loving. This God entered into the world 
And he did so in the same way that we came into the world. As a baby in his mother's womb, he was born into a poor family, never did anything wrong, yet suffered verbal, emotional, spiritual, and physical abuse. He was betrayed by his own people, sentenced to death in the cruelest way imaginable. But on the cross, love and judgment intersected. Love and judgment came together, much like a road running north and south intersects with a road running east and west. And when you see such an intersection, what are you reminded of? What you see in front of me and what you see behind me. It's a crossroads. The cross is where love and justice intersect. You see, if there is no justice, there cannot be love. And if there is no love, there can be no justice. Or only love, there can be no justice. At the cross, the lion was humiliated and put to death. But on the third day, the lion roared. The lion had conquered sin and death for all who would believe in him, for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The thought of a roaring lion on the loose is a frightening thing, but a roaring lion is the picture that Amos paints for us of God coming to earth to bring justice, to make everything right, to bring restoration to the earth without the curse of sin, and to restore the state of every soul who believes in him to a state of perfection. Perfect people living with other perfect people in a perfect world with our perfect God and Savior is indeed the satisfaction we deeply long for. No soft, fuzzy, teddy bear God could bring something like this to pass. No, only a roaring lion can do that. Let us pray. Father, may we be aware of your awesomeness and be aware of the amazing grace alongside your perfect and righteous justice and the awareness that you couldn't just wave your hand and our sins be gone that that would not satisfy justice. We could not pay the price of our sins, but you could and did in the person of Christ, this one who absorbs all of our sins and who will one day make everything right, satisfying justice and at the same time demonstrating unfathomable love. May we be in awe of you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.